Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, What Near-Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side. Today we're going to share an experience from Enderf.org by Maria. And Maria says, I was on vacation with my ex-husband in my native country, Bulgaria. I didn't know that I was pregnant, two to three months approximately, and had to carry a large suitcase the whole day in the summer sun of Bulgaria, 35 to 40 degrees Celsius. We had some alcohol in the evening since we were visiting a colleague from Bulgaria and spent the night there. At night, I started having a hor- having horrible diarrhea and hemorrhage. The toilet was full of blood. Eventually, I had to lie down on the couch since... The blood was spurting like a flood between my legs and I couldn't get up. My colleague's husband drove me to the nearest hospital. There the doctors decided that I had a miscarriage and that I had to have a cleaning of the uterus done by an expert, as is usual in cases like this. I was committed and didn't have permission either to eat or drink until the operation. The next day, I was going to have the operation, but the room was filled with women who got priority because they were acquainted with the doctors. And I was left there for another day. And another day. I had to wait for three days in all, but I still didn't have permission to eat or drink. In any case, it was soon my turn. I wasn't weighed either and walked into the operating room where women were operating on conveyor belt style, uh, operated on, conveyor belt style. They had hardly cleaned out the room before me since there was the smell of blood everywhere. And I still thought, at last, this is going to be quickly over with, and I didn't have a clue what was awaiting me. I was put on a bed, and the anesthetist gave me a substance injection of of the anesthetic. I could only watch helplessly that the dosage seemed to be twice the usual amount, what I thought was reasonable. The procedure was quick. Nobody asked me about my weight or anything else. I was given the injection. It was exactly as if I had been, or I had some acid put on me. It was like a fire that killed everything in its way. My body seemed to get gassed to death. I felt myself starting to choke. I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm on fire. I remember I clenched at my throat. Then I got so angry and disappointed with myself, but I could still think and feel myself thinking, and I could hear, and I could even hear my thoughts all the time, sometimes reverberate very strongly in my head. Why did I come here to give my body to these idiots? I'm absolutely crazy. How could I come to this horrible place and give my body over to them? I was apparently too hard on myself and too disappointed with my irresponsibility. I had given my confidence to the wrong kind of doctors and was very, very angry with myself for being so gullible. Then it seemed like I was inside a cubist painting or work of art. I became a triangle and struggled with the sharp corners of other triangles. Later I learned that the doctors hit me at the end of the procedure to make me wake up. 
I was slapped in the face many times, but this was in the beginning of the experience. I didn't understand anything, but I was helpless. It was like during pregnancy later in my life. All I could do was tag along. You have no choice. My disappointment over that I'd left my body to the idiots at the hospital passed, and I started to explore my new condition. I realized that I wasn't dead. I had only changed my state of consciousness. I still existed. I didn't understand anything. How is this possible? I have no body, but I'm alive. What is it that's left of me, then? By now I was pretty shocked over how fast all this came over me in the operation room, so I didn't think of looking at myself to examine the remains of my being further. I just started to acquaint myself with my new condition in the sense that I understood that I was only a voice. This was obvious to me now, and how high that voice was. It kind of echoed such a force. It sure was strange not to have a body anymore and just have your little voice left. To be transformed into a voice in the whole of your being. The women from my room later told me that I'd been, uh, that I'd scared all the pregnant ladies in the ward because I'd been screaming at the top of my voice straight through the whole procedure. But in the beginning, I kind of heard little uh, glimpses of this, but later during this stage, I kind of sank into myself and all the memories from that room faded away. It was strange to be alive, but still existing as a voice. It was shocking, upheaving. I have strong bonds to my dear, self-sacrificing, warm Bulgarian mother, who's the best mother in the whole world. But strangely enough, I didn't have a thought about leaving her behind, or my father, or my husband, or my earthly life. Not a trace of regret. It was just upheaving to change conditions so dramatically and find myself in my new role as a bodiless being, as pure voice, and nothing more. At this stage, I had surely grieved for my body, but no glimpses, no films, no memory from my earthly life, nothing I missed or even thought about. Then the light came. I was thrown straight into the middle of the sun, straight into the middle of the warmest, most beautiful, most welcoming light, where I instantly felt that here I felt good. I was drawn to the ocean of light as a gigantic magnet and drowned in light. I'm not sure, but I might have heard psalms singing. It was like the light was singing in some way, but not really. It wasn't sound. It might have been telepathic. My soul might have come into contact with the soul music of the light. It was light, and it was love at the same time. There was hidden and encoded heavenly music in the whole thing. 
It wasn't important. The main thing was that here I felt welcomed and loved. I came home. The intensity is so indescribable in words, so I can't convey the experience in any way to anybody who haven't experienced this themselves. Nothing on earth is comparable. Everything on earth fades compared with the strength of this experience. Then I thought like this, it's not so bad here. I don't want to go back to earth. No, not ever. Never back there. Never again. Back to earth? And why should I go back to earth? Note that I was thinking in terms of down. There on earth, everything is so materialistic. Everything has to be dragged back and forth, shoved to the right and left. You have to fight hard for results. A lot of work for nothing. Here I could move as I wanted, where I wanted. It's not so bad here. I absolutely don't want to go back down to earth. And while I was enjoying my condition of total freedom and total love, I was pulled down as if by a line, an elevator, a force of gravity or a force, something that pulled me back into my body. My physical eyes opened in a strange way. My field of vision started to uncover the room from the upper parts of it and down. So the first thing I saw was the machinery above my roommate's beds and then their heads and themselves lying there, the last, the legs of the beds. It was as if somebody put me back with a line in my physical body without me being able to influence it in the least. I was put back into the doll again without anyone asking me if I wanted to it or not. The women gathered around my bed. Girl, you scared us all with all your screaming. The whole hospital is scared. What happened to you? Everybody looked so pale. Nothing. I, I was exploring, I heard myself say. I answered automatically. What kind of exploring did you do? I heard them ask ironically. They thought I was insane. Explorations about God, I answered curtly and saw them being taken aback. They understood that I'm not insane but still have my intellect left intact. Then I was alone. Oh, they couldn't fool me. I was wide awake and not worth the trouble. Then I was left alone. I couldn't wait for the nurse to come to our room. Nurse, what did you give me that was so awful? I asked about the anesthetic. I heard her rattle off all six or seven Latin names for the anesthetic with their complete word or complex words. Then she left the room. It took me four months to come back to life. I longed to get back home. I didn't want to live on. That's how wonderful the experience was. My relatives looked suspiciously at me. Maybe she was insane. But I was more alert than them. I still appreciated the continuance of life and was very shocked and scared by the whole thing. At the first possible moment, I went and lighted a candle for God in the temple of Ram Pometnik, Alexander Nevsky, 
in the center of Sophia. It was then that I realized for the first time that the churches are the only institutions on earth that are right. The experience changed my outlook on God. From being atheist and non-believer, I pounced hungrily upon spiritual literature, starting, started visiting the Kursna Temple, was vegetarian for three years and going to be so again. I read so much that my muscles atrophied. Today I'm sick with, with, in fibromyalgia and rheumatism. The will to gain knowledge was and is enormously strong. Today I'm convinced that God exists. I dream prophetic dreams. My grandfather comes to visit me often and radiates light and energy. He turns, turns up in difficult moments and sometimes warns me. We hug in every dream. Everybody should go through a near-death experience to grow spiritually and personally. Material and bodily things become unimportant. You see through people's eyes. I got an unlimited outlook on life, which sometimes seems, can be scary. You think on a very large scale and globally and see connections more clearly. Money, career, intrigues, sex appeal, all of this is not important at all in my life as it was before the experience. All I strive for is vegetarianism and animal's liberation from the concentration camps. In my case, I'm graceful, or I'm grateful that I had good karma and was sent to the light, despite the fact that I wasn't any kind of angel back then. And yet, God was merciful enough to let me explore him. As for the rest, I'm grateful that I didn't meet any being at all. Beings would have scared me. I'm grateful that Grandfather turns up in dreams now and then, and that we keep in touch, and that God answers some of my prayers before I go to sleep, when I doubt. I'm sure that I can expand my relationship to God if I physically have the chance and time to do what I'd like to do. I'm not at all stupid or naive, but just a person who's eager to learn and who's pretty well read now after all the seeking and after the staggering experience that isn't comparable to anything in this life. Thank you for letting me pour my heart out to you. That is the end of Maria's account. And I love this. I love this. She is, uh, she has a unique experience in that she doesn't see beings. She doesn't seem to go through a tunnel. Um, she does talk about light and so forth. Uh, you know, even being thrown into the middle of the sun, as she puts it. But most of it was just being a voice. I've never heard it described as just being a voice. And obviously... Uh, there would have to be a mind of some kind behind the voice, a consciousness, if you will. And uh, she seems to be just a consciousness with a voice. And her voice, I would guess, is just telepathic anyway. Now, is this, is this an example of the uh, conscious intelligence form as opposed to the spirit body form? I don't know. I don't know. I would suspect so, if that's even really a thing. I would suspect this might be an example of that. And that sense of, of oneness, the sense of, of being, oh, how does she put it, that uh, she has, uh, well, she describes being able to move freely, which is, is the case with, um, 
uh, spirit body as well. But uh, she describes, um, she says, it's not so bad here. I didn't want, or I don't want to go back to Earth. Never, ever, ever again do I want to go back to Earth. And she says, there on Earth, everything is so materialistic. Everything has to be dragged back and forth, shoved to the right and left. And you have to fight hard for results. A lot of work for nothing. Here I could move as I wanted, where I wanted. And uh, that's an interesting description because you think about... The, I, I've heard a lot of people uh, describe the body as feeling very heavy when they first get back in. They say gravity is so heavy, you don't realize it until you've been out of the body, when you've been moving so freely, how heavy the body is. And just little things like if you need to get to the other side of the room, you got to go around stuff. You got to push your way through or walk around. You've, you know, and even then standing up might hurt your back or might make your head spin. And just like there's so many little things that are constantly holding you back from moving freely or getting to something freely or, or obtaining something freely, you know, whereas there results just happen instantly things go where they need to go and and people are able to move freely um there doesn't seem to be anyone saying no you can't go there you can't go there whatever i i I haven't heard much of that there's sometimes people will say you're not ready to go past that gate yet or you're not ready to move on because you got to go back to your life but i'm under the impression that most of those situations are situations where they're being told we can't let you in the spirit world fully yet because you're going to get attached and not want to go back. Uh, And, and so it's more of a, it's not that you will never be able to go there or that you're restricted, but rather that um, it's not time for that yet, but it's coming. You know, when you do die, you'll be able to go there freely, freely. And in the midst of this wonderful experience that she's having, suddenly she feels herself sucked back, uh, pulled back as if, by gravity or by some kind of rope pulling her back into her body. And she is, you know, I can imagine she's going through the no kind of experience that a lot of them go through when they're returned to their body. And um, unfortunately, and this is extremely common with near-death experiencers, um, when she gets back, it's really hard really hard for her to adjust. She says, it took me four months to come back to life. I longed to get back home. Now, it could be that part of that was to get back into full health again, but I'm under the impression that it was not that. It was rather that she just felt dead to the world, to to herself, because she missed home so much. She said, I longed to get back home. I didn't want to live on. That's how wonderful the experience was. My relatives looked suspiciously at me. Maybe she was insane, but I was more alert than them. And then she says she did appreciate the continuance of life and was shocked and scared by the whole thing. And, uh, and then she starts to take interest in spiritual things, which is another common element in near-death experiences. When somebody uh, has this kind of experience, they often feel a draw towards spiritual things, and they will seek it either at church, in 
religious writings and spiritual uh, 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 leaders or, or, you know, friends and so forth, people that are familiar with spiritual things, they'll seek it out anywhere they can get it. It's, it's like somebody who has, you know, tasted sugar for the first time, something sweet for the first time, and then they're asking anybody, do you have anything sweet? Do you have any sugar? Do you have anything, you know? It's probably not a great example. It might, you know, maybe more like water. When you're thirsty, you get a small sip of water, a quarter cup or something, and you're just famished for water, and, and uh, you're going seeking it anywhere. Um, I heard this story about, uh, it was a friend telling me about uh, how he had gone hiking and uh, with a friend and they had stayed the night at the top of the mountain and they had run out of water before even getting to the top of the mountain. And then it was too late to head back and they planned on camping up there, but they didn't intend to run out of water so fast, but they did. They ran out of water before they got to the top and then uh, all that night, couldn't drink anything, and then headed down the mountain the next morning. And they said when they got back, they were so thirsty that my friend saw a mud puddle in the road full of muddy water. And he ran to it and got down on his hands and knees and slurped it up like there was no tomorrow. He said it he just needed water at all costs is, is what it felt like. And I'm almost under the impression that the spiritual longing, the spiritual yearning that comes from this kind of awakening becomes like that. They, there's a longing for spiritual things, a longing for God, a longing for home that is just unquenchable almost. And yet that seeking does bring some level of, of um, fulfillment because um, they just keep searching and they keep digging and finding and learning and feeling. And she talks about how um, after this she is just scouring so many books and spending so much time um, in spiritual literature that um, she finds herself sick with fibromyalgia and rheumatism um, because her muscles atrophied in the time that she spent studying. Now, some of that may have been recovery time, but beyond that, I mean, she's just so anxious for the spiritual food, if you will. And um, it's, it's very interesting. And in this studying, as well as in her experience in all of it, one of the conclusions she comes to, which is fascinating to me, and different than what many people conclude, but I think there's a reason for it. But she says, it was then that I realized for the first time that the churches are the only institutions on earth that are right. What would she mean by that? What would she mean by they're the only ones that are right? Well, I, I can't speak for her, but I would guess what she's saying is these churches that are saying God is the one in control, that there's spiritual activity going on, that, uh, that, you know, that there is another side, uh, a matrix of life where on the other side there is life going on and so forth, as churches suggest that heaven is there, angels, so forth. They're the only institutions on earth that are right. Because how many, because what else is there? besides um, the churches. I, I'm just kind of trying to, you know, come to a conclusion about why she would come to this conclusion. <laughs> uh, why else would 
Or what other institutions are there out there that accept that there is another realm that is influencing this realm and that there are beings um, who love and care about us and are looking after us and, and all of that than what you find in religious, spiritual, and, um, you know, in the church's uh, literature and in, uh, and in the writings and practices of of various faiths. And, you know, whether you're Muslim with your prayers, Buddhist with your meditation, uh, uh, Christian with your prayers and, and uh, scripture study and so forth, or, or whatever religion in whatever kind of practice that you have, that seeking of spiritual things is found in religion. And it's a beautiful thing. Uh, and I applaud it. Now, of course, not every religion can be completely accurate in everything that they teach. Of course not. And I'm not even suggesting that. But the fact that they're willing to acknowledge that there is a God, or that there is a being, or that there are spirits, or whatever, may help put us in a frame of mind to be able to better understand these things. So, anyway, I just thought that was an interesting thing, that churches are the only institutions on earth that are right. So, finding the right church for you, I think, is really important um, to this spiritual journey. And you may or may not find it. I don't know, but... Uh, it's worth the search, isn't it? Anyway, I also like how she says that um, when she opened up spiritually like this, she said material and bodily things became unimportant. It, you see through people's souls. She says, I got an unlimited outlook on life, which can sometimes be scary. She says, you think on a very large scale and globally and see connections more clearly. Money, career, intrigues, sex appeal, all of this is not important at all in my life as it was as it was before the experience. I find that interesting, very interesting. I also find it interesting that she suddenly takes up a very uh, a, a much more concern for animals. This seems to be a thing too. A lot of near-death experiencers become vegetarians because of the cruelty to animals. Now, I'm one as a gardener and ecologist and, um, and uh, you know, someone who studies the environment, plants, animals, and so forth. I'm convinced that plants are every bit life forms just as animals are and that they have some level of emotion and feeling too. Now, if I were to give, away, give up eating plants and animals... I would just die. There's just nothing left. Even supplements come from those sources. So, I mean, there's just nothing you can do um, to avoid eating life. And that's one of the trials, I think, of this life, one of the challenges. But, you know, I'm convinced as I see my trees coming out of dormancy and, and just the life that they have in their beauty and their just sweetness. I mean, there's a spirit about them. I can tell. I recognize it. I don't know that I can, you know, necessarily communicate with them by any means or, or you know, know exactly what they need or want other than what I conjecture from my studies of gardening and so forth. But plants have life. They are absolute life forms and they have a sense about them of emotion, 
I don't know how or to what level, but they have some kind of level of emotion and caring about them. And so I can't fully separate them from animals. Now, does that mean I'm going to, you know, uh, like I said, not eat them? Of course I have to eat them. <laughs> I have to eat them. That's, that's part of my being here. It, it's required in order for me to be here. Um, but there's a difference between, you know, wasting and, and just, you know, laughingly chopping down baby trees and so forth and eating with respect and gratitude. I, I can't help think that the spirits of creatures, this is my own idea. I'm not saying that this is something people have said, but I suspect that both animals and plants when we eat them in gratitude to God for the, the nutrient that they provide us, that when we approach it that way, that their spirits are grateful for the opportunity to be of service to us. It reminds me of the, uh, the experience of the woman who is, is, has died and she is walking around and she's seeing the stuff around her, furniture and so forth. And she sees this couch and the couch, it is as if it is emanating the message, I am a couch serving you, serving God. I am a door serving you, serving God. I am, you know, a carpet serving you, serving God. I think there's something to that. And I think there's something uh, to that when we eat food with gratitude and love. I very strongly um, encourage people to, you know, say grace before they eat, even if only in your heart and in silence at, at a restaurant or whatever, or, you know, where, anytime you eat, just have a little prayer, it, just in a quiet place in your heart that says, thank you, God, for this nutrient, and thank you for providing it. Thank you for the life of this being and, and for the, uh, what it's doing for me. Just doing that, I think, gives that, the spirit of that thing, something of a loving purpose to which they can feel um, gratitude in return. I, that's my suspicion. I don't know. I, I suspect that's the case. And when I, when I harvest my lettuce, I don't pull the thing out by the root. I chop off what I need and let the rest grow. And yes, it will die in winter. It will, you know, but I let nature do that and, and so forth. I cut off what I need and leave the rest. In fact, I try to never take more than 20% of a plant when I harvest it. And once it grows that much back, I'll take 20% again, you know, and and it keeps growing back as long as it's in a season that's uh, favorable to it. And, uh, you know, as far as fruit and so forth, I take the core and throw it back out into the garden in case it might grow some, uh, some you know, new plants from it. That's just, that's just the gardener in me. I'm not suggesting that you have to do that in order to show respect for the food or for the plant that grew it or whatever. But anyway, just a few thoughts to think about and... And just think about it the next time you walk past a tree, next time you look at a flower, even the scrawny, annoying weed that you see growing between the cracks of your sidewalk. Just stop and look at it and think about it. There's something in spirituality 
that allows us to um, value the marginal, the things that are in the cracks, in between, the, the forgotten, the, the, the unloved, because our spirits, deep down, they want to love, and they need to love. And when that love is given out, it is given back in return. And I feel that, I sense that from plants, from animals, from other people. And yeah, I, I have to be careful not to be naively taken into somebody's, um, you know, attempts to take advantage of an opportunity uh, to, you know, get something more out of me than what I should be giving or, or whatever. I do have to be careful of that. And I try very hard to, you know, keep my guard up when I feel it's necessary. And I try, and, you know, if you're close to God, you can usually sense something being off. And sometimes you can even sense that I need to get out of this situation, or I need to stop giving way to this person, or I need to, you know, it's the same thing if you're in an abusive relationship. You should not be giving of yourself to the abuse. You should love yourself enough to get yourself out of the abusive situation. And whether that means leaving the relationship, turning them into the police, whatever it is, you know, get into a situation where proper love can be available. And often that means getting out of an abusive relationship entirely. That person is not going to heal while, you, while you're allowing yourself to be abused by them. And the longer they take to heal their problem, um, the worse off it is for them and for you. Anyway, if you would like to contact the podcast, you can do so by emailing neardeathexperiencepodcast at gmail.com or by calling 970-NDE-CAST. You can also support the podcast by either going to patreon.com slash NDE-CAST and becoming an ongoing monthly contributor. By And by doing so, you'll have an extra episode of the show every week. Or you can support the show by purchasing my book, Life in the spirit world. And once again, thank you all of you so much again for listening.